Welcome to the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. Michael Carrier has published 14 books of fiction, all centered on his main character, Jack Handler, a retired Chicago homicide detective. His books have been featured throughout the Midwest, mainly centering in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. At various times in his life, Michael has driven truck throughout the U.S., hustled pool and gambled poker from Texas to Montana, traveled the country hitchhiking, spent five years in New York's East Greenwich Village, delivered diamonds for a New York wholesaler, he disguised himself as a down-and-outer, tended bar at a New York nightclub, climbed dozens of water towers throughout the U.S., panned for gold, skydived, and worked for over nearly three decades in private security. Greetings, as always, from the Crystal Falls District Community Library. Tonight, we've got a nice group. We've got five of us here zooming in along with the rest of you out there and more joining as we speak. Um, Victor, do you want to give us any um, up uh, highlights or, or news? Sure, thanks, Evelyn. I would encourage anyone who's interested in writing to come check out our group at www.uppaa.org. That's UPA, the Upper Peninsula Publishers and Authors Association. Uh, we have just released the UP Reader uh, number five, which is a collection of writings by all of our authors, and it's now available in audiobook format too. So, if you like ebooks, audiobooks, paperbacks, hardcovers, we've got a UP reader for you. Great. And, you know, really, just speaking as a librarian, we have quite a few patrons that love to check out the UP reader. It's a yes. collection of poems <laughs> and short stories and little essays. And I mean, we, one of our patrons has just been adamant. They've been in here every day, just begging me to order it before it even came in. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's nice. And if, if you want to buy your own copy or even check it out from your library, or if your library doesn't have it, you should suggest they get it because it is really a nice collection of, you know, kind of what's happening with UP authors for that particular year. And what's it called? It's called the UP Reader. And there are five volumes. And like Victor said, it's available in paperback and hardback. And now this edition is even in audio. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, more and more people are joining us. As far as news goes from our book club, I want to remind everybody that remember, if you have one of the early calendars of our book club, April and June flipped. So in June, we are going to be reading Anne Dahlman's um, Katie and the Bear Necklace. And somebody just checked it out of the library today. That's why I've got this beautiful paper edition. <laughs> so this one is for June and it is, Anne, um, do you want to talk at all about it and give us a little, little blurb or anything? Anne right now is muted. So we'll give her a minute. Okay, maybe. There, oh, there she is. I'm okay. muted and drinking a little bit of wine. So <laughs> it's been a day. <laughs> been a long day um yeah it's a it's classified as middle grade or young adult but adults are reading it and I had a wonderful review printed earlier this month in um, Michigan in books with Tom Powers and he, he was just so complimentary and said any he defies any adult not to read it and enjoy it it's about a young girl who um is part Indian and she moves with her family to 
uh, the UP, and she attends a reservation school for the first time in her life. She has a lot of changes going on in her life, a new stepmother, a new baby brother. But um, during all that, she finds a necklace bare, you know, hidden in her closet, kind of hidden under the floor. She wonders why she was chosen to find this. And the story takes off from there. Wonderful. Why she found it and um, what it meant. Okay. Well, I know I'm excited to read it. I know a few patrons in our library have read it and they had good reports. So oh, that's coming what? up good. in you know. June. And then in July, Michael, do you want to wave so everybody can see who you are? Okay, Michael there wrote many books, but this is one of the UP notable books um, for year one, and it's called Lake Superior Tales. It's nice and short, about 122 pages. And um, that is, he, Michael is the only author to have been selected twice for the UP Notables books, year one and year two. So this is his year one selection. We're reading this for July. And then in August, it's a bigger book. So you may wanna get a jump on that a little bit sooner. Go Find by Susan Purvis. And then in September, we start year two which is very exciting. And we always want to thank Victor and Michael and the good people at UPA for helping support these author talks. So um, I have to say, I met Michael um, in Escanaba at a craft show, a Christmas time craft show. And I bought one of his books for our library. And he just seemed to be he was a very charismatic, nice guy. He had a, a a bevy of fans. I had to wait my turn to speak to him and ask if someday he could come to our library and talk to us. And little did I know then that, you know, we would become more of a virtual world. And anyway, um, uh, I got a chance to read Murder on Sugar Island, which I suppose most of you did too, to get ready for tonight. Yes. And I, I really liked it. I could picture Red very clearly in my mind and the dog. <laughs> so without any further ado i'd like to introduce to you and have everybody put your hands together for michael carrier well i really want to thank you and victor and michael for all that you guys do uh, in putting this together we all appreciate you so much uh, great job all around uh, and i hope i don't disappoint you tonight after that big buildup you gave me <laughs> but I do remember you. <laughs> uh, I thought first off what I would do, for starters, anytime anyone has a question, just interrupt because uh, it, it's really nice to be able to address what uh, you folks are thinking about. But I thought I would go over what uh, Murder on Sugar Island is about. Uh, what, I, what I was basing that on, as you, as you probably know, I was a private security contractor for a long time. And it was not a case that I worked on, but it got my attention. And that's the, uh, uh, was it Isabel, Isabella Stewart Garner Gallery uh, uh, robbery in 1990 in Boston. And I always wondered, why aren't we finding out what happened to that art? It started out as a $200 million heist then it was upgraded, and now they're they're thinking 500 million, 
and uh, it could go higher because there were 12 very important pieces that were stolen that night and they haven't turned up. And that's uh, a couple of, uh, a few decades ago that that, that that took place. And I thought, man, there's gotta be, there's gotta be a reasonable solution to that as to where that art might've might have uh, finally turned up. And I, I do have a theory and whether it's correct or not, uh, I pretty much spell it out in Murder on Sugar Island. Had a lot of fun doing it. I uh, didn't get in any real trouble for it. Uh, it did, I believe, prompt an FBI uh, release shortly after that book came out, indicating that uh, you know I really don't know what I'm talking about. They didn't speak. They didn't put my name on there, but I was uh, I was the one who was writing about it. Uh, but there is such a thing as a statute of limitation, and even though they are pretty sure they know who pulled it off. Uh, the statute of limitations has expired uh, for theft in, in Boston. So uh, they're very much interested in retrieving the art, but there's really nothing they can do to the, 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 per, uh, the perpetrators of it. But I had, I had a whole lot of fun doing it. Uh, I thought I would run through my characters briefly. Uh, again, anytime you have a question, be sure and ask my main character, of course, is Jack Handler, and he is a retired Chicago homicide detective. He now works as a private security contractor, and he lives on Sugar Island. Uh, he still retains ownership, uh, partial ownership, of a bar in Chicago that he uses um, to, to launder his income there because the people that hire him really, now I never did this, of course, but the people that hire him uh, don't want to uh, don't want to be found out. So uh, a bar is a, is a is a good place to to hide that sort of uh, uh, money transfers. So that's what he that's what he uses uh, uses the bar for. Well, he was married when he was living in Chicago, and his wife was murdered uh, in in, a, in an attack that was uh, targeted at him. Uh, he was wounded. He, he was injured, but you know, his wife was killed. He never remarried. Uh, Kate is another one of the important characters. Kate is a, is a lieutenant in the New York City uh, 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 lieutenant uh, detective. And uh, uh, she hit, hits the, the larger cases in New York. But she spends a lot of time on Sugar Island as well. Uh, whenever Jack needs someone to, to watch out for the, for the boys, or it, when Murder on Sugar Island was written, it was just Red. Uh, he calls on his daughter. Well, Red is a 13, now 14-year-old runaway foster kid. And he is hiding out on Sugar Island when this book starts. Uh, the sheriff wants to put him back into a bad foster situation, he wants no part of it. So he's hiding out there with his dog, Buddy. And those have become, I think, my two uh, favorite characters among readers is Buddy and Red. Uh, but uh, Red was immediately, uh, people loved him immediately. Same with Buddy, because Buddy's a nice dog. And uh, uh, so they then have worked their way into all my subsequent books. 
Uh, well, to make life really difficult, Red witnesses a murder on Sugar Island. So now he has the killer after him and he has the sheriff after him uh, for very different reasons. And Jack would like, when Jack comes on the scene, he would like to help Red, but Red also has a speech impediment. So the only person on earth that can really understand Red is Buddy. Uh, so that's really where Jack finds that situation. Kate uh, enters into it as well. Uh, and other characters come along down the line. Uh, we might talk about them later, like Henry, Native American that uh, uh, has worked his way into most of the subsequent books. And then Robbie, but Robbie is not in Murder on Sugar Island. Um, foster child. I talked to two girls this past weekend. Uh, they were both foster children and they were adopted out of foster care. And they thought, they thought that was uh, just terrific to, uh, uh, to be introduced uh, to uh, Red and Robbie. Robbie uh, is of course a superior peril but uh, uh, they were very much interested in, uh, uh, they'd read Murder on Sugar Island and, and liked Red. Uh, but that's where that, that's where that book starts out. And there's, a, there's a lot of little things that go on in the development of that plot line, but those are, those are the, the principal characters. Uh, question that comes up that I hear quite a lot is from people that, that uh, I meet. Um, why did you ever start writing? What prompted it? And I really did not have a large choice in that. Because when I was four years old, I had a speech impediment that did not allow me to talk. And it was, uh, gosh, I was in the uh, when I started kindergarten, I could talk poorly, but I could, I could talk. But I learned to write before I learned to talk. What my mother did, and I wasn't aware of it, what was going on at the time, but she hired my kindergarten teacher to come over two afternoons a week or evenings after school. And on the pretext of teaching little Michael play the piano, she taught me to read. And what she did is she had me read uh, the, 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 the books I would be uh, using in kindergarten and first grade. So within a year, by the time I actually started school, I, had, uh, I didn't stutter anymore, thanks to Miss Dow, who lived to be over 100 in spite of me. But uh, she taught me to read so that I was actually, when I started kindergarten, I was reading the third grade books. And uh, so I, it was pretty much natural for me to, uh, to, to, to write. And that's what I really always wanted to do. And when I was a sophomore in college, I was taking a journalism course. And I was doing, I thought pretty well, I was getting A's, A minuses, and some B pluses. And my journalism professor, now 
you folks probably have heard of this before. I have never heard of it. But his assignment was that all of his class, everyone in his class, should write their own obituary. And that sounded interesting. I had never heard of anything like that. So I wrote my obituary. In my obituary, I would teach at the university level until I turned 55. When I turned 55, I would retire and I would start writing fiction. And when he passed the papers out, he passed everyone's out except mine and he held it. And as he excused class, he said, uh, Michael, I want you to, to stay here. I want to talk to you for a minute. So I did. I thought, I didn't know if I was in trouble or what the scoop was, but I stayed there. And I was very shy, so I was scared to death. And he said, Michael, I want you to explain to me why you're going to wait until you're 55 before you start writing. <laughs> And I said, because I have no life experience. I'm just a, you know, a, I'm just a snot-nosed kid, really. I didn't say that to him, but that's what I thought. And that's what my, most everybody else thought of me. And uh, he says, well, he said, I can understand that. You have no experience, no life experience. He said, why don't you write for me? And he was the editor of a national magazine, uh, a, a Christian uh, magazine. He said, why don't, you, why, don't, why don't you come down and have a meeting with me? We'll figure out where you'd work, work in best. And he said, if you'd like to do that, I'll, I'll put you to work right now. So that's what he did. And for the next two years, I had, I edited. Now that by itself has to be unbelievable because I can't, spell for beans. I just never learned to spell. And here I am editing other people's work. And thankfully, I had an editor over me. So I would uh, receive the, the letters from the mission field. And you, you can only imagine how, uh, how, well, I'm not going to comment on it too much, but it was like a total rewrite. And I would do the rewrite, and then I would submit it to my editor, and my editor would correct all of my mistakes. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And I really had no complaints because I turned a lot of letters into halfway decent articles. I had a lot of fun with it. But the real test came, and it, feel free to interrupt me anytime, but I, this is very important, I think, if you want to understand where I come from. What I did is, on graduation night, my parents had come down to pick me up and they were fully intending to take me back uh, home. And I was set to go to NYU for grad. Uh, they, they, they weren't sure what I was going to be doing, but I told them I had a bus ticket that they can take my belongings, but I'm not going home. And my parents were wonderful, wonderful people and had nothing to do with them. It was just, I, I wanted to get some life experience. So I took a bus to Texas and I, I, I had made arrangements to do some working there for uh, a fellow that harvested wheat from Texas to Montana. 
So that's what I did my first summer is I drove truck, drove combine. And at night, I ran into this guy that was just an absolutely phenomenal pool player. And he taught me how to hustle pool. So we would go to the bars and didn't drink, go to the bars and, and we, would, we would win a fairly sizable amount of money. Like he was a pool player, I wasn't. But what I would do is I would go around and I would take the bets. And when he was ready to lose, he would knock the chalk off the table. And when he did that, then I would bet the other way. And that would be the last game we would play that night because we would, we would probably either get beat up or killed. So as soon as that game was over, we'd be done. And, uh, but at any rate, that's pretty much you know, how I, every town we went to, I was afraid of heights. So every town we went to, I would climb the water tower. And I soon, I did that, I, I bet you a dozen times that summer. I eventually lost my, <laughs> it's a good way to break uh, a phobia. And the, what topped it all off, it wasn't the last one we did, but we, this other guy and I climbed the water tower. We got on top of it and it was round on top, not round, but curved. So it was very hard, the ladder stopped. And so you pretty much use gravity and whatever was there to, to get your way up. And we sat there through sunset. And then we looked at each other. We had no memory of where that ladder was. So how are we going to get down? So we sat there for another probably half hour stewing. And so then we took and looked around and we found where the, the dirt, because it was filthy up there, where the dirt was, was uh, rubbed off. And that obviously had to be where the ladder was. So I had him lay on his stomach and he lowered me to the ladder. And yep, my feet found it. And we got off it, but we did exercise a lot more caution from that point on. But that's always been the, the, the way I wanted to live, is I always wanted to push it to the edge and, and see, see what, I could, what I could do and what I couldn't do and what the dangers were. I did go, went to New York. I was a grad on a fellowship at NYU and moved into the Greenwich Village. And uh, I just learned an enormous amount. I'd never lived in a big city in my life. And here I was living there with, uh, with another guy before we were married. And uh, uh, gosh, one block away, I don't remember if you remember uh, Dustin Hoffman, that major bomb that was exploded there on 11th Street. Well, I was on 9th Street. And so that was that was always that was very interesting. But a lot of things are happening during that that uh, point in time. And I, I really enjoyed it. We every morning I walked by the uh, Fillmore East, which is the theater that uh, where all the rock uh, groups would come in and play. And it was kind of interesting. I was talking to a lady at one of my book signings about, oh gosh. I think it was towards the end of last summer. And she was from New York. And like New Yorkers can be, she was pretty much, uh, I don't know, she was a little on the haughty side. 
And uh, so I, I started talking to her about her life and what, oh, she lived there. She's about my age. She lived in New York at the very same time. We lived, we lived within a block of each other. We both walked by the Fillmore East twice a day. Uh, and she did the, one of the highlights of our time where I drank too much when I lived there. One of the highlights was, uh, I, probably all of you folks are too young to remember Ripple. Ripple was a, was a it was like a Thunderbird wine. It, it was, it was Michael shaking his head. <laughs> anyway. Been there, done that. <laughs> well, you would have liked this lady because so did she. Because one of the things I, that I did is I thought, well, these bottles are so interesting. I hate to just keep throwing them away. So I cut the tops off of them and made wine glasses out of them. Sure. And uh, occasionally after a couple, we'd, we'd end up cutting our lip on them, but we had a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> but she did the same darn thing. She did the same thing. She had, she bought all my books that day. <laughs> but it was, those are the kinds of crazy, crazy things we did. We got, then we got married and Evie uh, moved into the village with me and we were hippies. And uh, one of the very first things that happened is I took her to Washington Square Park and lo and behold, we we're having our lunch there and we got robbed. And that tends to happen in New York. And we sat there and I did not have any means of defense except my mouth. I ended up I ended up talking them out of their lunch. And they sat there with a knife in ribs there in Evie's ribs. And I talked the guy that was sitting next to me out of part of their lunch. And I knew as soon as I'd done that, that we were gonna be able to handle this. So we did, and uh, that turned out okay. But there were just, there were tons of experiences like that, but it's all part of my, inventory of life experience. I have been robbed with, with guns. I have been, uh, no, it, it got very interesting. I became known in our building on uh, 531 East 6th Street. Now I'm not a very large person, but I came to, be, came to be known in the community as the man because I was always the one that, that jumped in and uh, uh, interfered with or defended people. And I uh, had this major club that I made and I would come down the stairs in the middle of the night and it was usually something domestic and I'd walk through the glass and it would be broken and I would end up with cut feet. But when we got ready to move, I'll cut this short. I just want you to see what I meant by life experience. When we were getting ready to move to Philadelphia. I was going to go to uh, the Dropsy School of Hebrew and Cognitive Learning to finish my PhD. Uh, they were waiting for us, all these people in the community. They were all drug addicts. And I did not know what in the world we were going to do. And so I went down, I asked my landlady, I said, what do you think? I said, I know there's at least five or six of them out there. And I I know they're waiting for me because I made their lives pretty miserable because I defended people. And she said, well, I'll go check on. So she went out and she checked, she came back. She says, no, she said, there's at least 15 of them out there. 
and they're standing, they're standing against the building and they're waiting for you because I had a truck and I was loading it up. Well, there's nothing, nothing a, a human being can do against that, that number. And these guys were, were much rougher and tougher than I was. So my wife stood there and we were talking about it and we were talking about it. And all of a sudden there were gunshots. The hand of God, it's the only thing I can attribute it to. But down the street, there was a bar. And that bar just got robbed. So running right past our windows was this guy with a hand. You can see the cash. He's running with a handful of cash. And the, 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 the proprietor of the bar was running behind him. Thankfully, he was a bad shot, but he was shooting. It was a small caliber, probably a 32, I would guess, revolver. And I grabbed the phone and I called the cops. I said, we have a robbery going on at 531 East. That was our address. I said, they're shooting. <laughs> Within a minute, there were probably six or seven cop cars on our street. <laughs> and so Evie and I went out. We very peacefully got in our truck. And that was goodbye to New York. We moved to Philadelphia. But that is how... That is how I sought to live, live my life. It is on the edge, but you know, she's never been hurt. I've never been hurt. And we have had, uh, we've got our noses in a lot of business that wasn't ours, but we always got out, but I never felt like, I, I never felt scared. It was just, I'm no Jack Hander. I don't go around shooting people, but I, I do know that, uh, uh, it, it, it has worked and I have enjoyed it. Uh, and I'm not done. I'm obviously not finished with that. Um, I don't know where I should go with this. I told you what, uh, oh, the UP. Why do I write about the UP? That's a good one. Is it okay if I just address that quickly? Sure. All right. Well, my dad, my parents were perfect parents. My dad was, uh, he was old even by, and he, he was born in 1901. Uh, he was 45 when I was born. Whoa. He had a lot of spirit, put it that way. But I, he, I, he was a fairly old guy even at that time. Well, he was a storyteller, just an excellent storyteller. So almost every night, I would, my mother would, would be up uh, he always went to bed early. I would jump in bed with him and he'd tell me a story. And I, I just relished those stories. Uh, what my dad was, was a lumberjack in Newberry, in the Newberry area. And he and his brother, and he was married at the time, and my mother, they lived there. And he was, he made the whiskey. He had the still. So he supplied quite an area and they would move from lumber camp to lumber camp and he would take his stove with him and uh, uh, he would sell the booze. And uh, one of my books, I'm going to hold it up here. This one. Can we see that? Yeah. You can see how thick it is. It's, it's, I think it's thicker than I wanted it. But if you get when you get to that book, and it's one of the books, Evelyn, I think you got. Yes. When you get to that and you read the, the part about the two brothers 
you're going to be reading about the stories that my father told me and my mother about them. Uh, my father was the one that carried the, uh, uh, the, the, for, the uh, 45 revolver. Uh, with the, I don't know if you're familiar with, way back there was a program called Wider. And Wider carried a long barreled 45. And that's what my dad carried. And the reason why Earp carried it is not because he could get it out of the holster quickly, but the barrel was a club and he could, he could take, he was a, he was a sheriff, White Earp was a sheriff. Well, my dad wasn't the sheriff, but he was a, he was a character. And uh, uh, the story that I tell in, uh, uh, from uh, Deadwood to Deep State about the bullet holes in the door in the, that's what my dad did, is they would take target practice from inside of the cottage, their door, so the, their door was full of bullet holes. So when he would get somebody there looking for booze and he knew it would be somebody that wouldn't pay his bill and he wanted to get rid of him, he would just tell him, can you see those bullet holes in the door? Well, yeah, well, there's going to be one more in about 10 seconds if you don't get out of here. <laughs> And so that's how that's how my dad was. My dad was was undoubtedly the most honest human being I've ever run into in my life. Uh, he never he never lied to me, and he never drank. His father was an alcoholic, and my dad made the booze, but it was a business proposition to him. I never saw him drink. Uh, to my knowledge, he never did, even as a as a young man. Well, his dad was, of course, the alcoholic, and that'd probably be enough to uh, prevent him from, from drinking much. But that's the, the story behind, behind my characters. Uh, before I go on, does anyone have anything they'd like to ask me? What was the name of the book with the four with the horses in front? That's called... Uh, from Deadwood to Deep State. From Deadwood to Deep State. And it does, it, it has, uh, it doesn't all take place in Newbury. Uh, a lot of it is, uh, uh, involves Deep State. Uh, I do tend sometimes to get myself in trouble. Uh, Deep State, I think, is a very real proposition today. Uh, I don't think I, I mentioned anything about my first book, which I didn't bring in here with me, but the first Jack Handler book was uh, Jack and the New York Death Mask. And it is a, a, a very good book. It has a, a, a lot of very uh, knowledgeable readers. Uh, I wrote that while I was still a private security contractor, Jack and the New York Death Mask. Uh, and when I wrote that, I had a little bit of an edge on, I had over a hundred military contracts during my career. And some dealing with, with the federal government. And I wrote that probably in a bad mood when I started. <laughs> <laughs> well, that finished in the bad mood uh, as well, but it is uh, Jack and the New York death mask. So, it does involve Jack and it does involve New York in DC. But at any rate, one of the things I do when you get to that, someday you'll get to that. Uh, 
there's a puzzle in uh, Murder on Sugar Island that alludes to uh, alludes to Jack the New York Death Mask because I also did write code. Well, when I did Death Mask, I irritated the powers that be in DC. Ah. And they had me interviewed by the FBI as a result of Death Mask, had me interviewed by the FBI three oh. times. Yeah. I had to be careful who I was taught. They would find me at the most inopportune moments. <laughs> and they would they would they would engage me in dialogue and then they would stop and they would say, my name is blah, Agent Blah Blah, and I'm, uh, uh, and this is going to be taped. I know, and they may dig this up too. <laughs> <laughs> but they would identify themselves as FBI, and from that point on, I was uh, because there is such a thing as deceit by omission, and you have to you have to guard. You cannot deceive the FBI when they've announced who they are. You cannot deceive them in any way, shape, or form. They have considerable amount of power, and they will, they're not they're not afraid. They know how to use it, and they're not afraid to use it. But I actually was uh, I, I, I was actually surveilled. I think by Homeland Security, but I I confronted them twice for surveilling me. And that was all as a result of death mass. Well, I don't ever want to go there again. And I don't think I ever will because uh, my books don't really warrant it. And I don't think that death mask warranted it. Uh, but, you know, life is what life is. And uh, they, they had apparently had reason to, uh, to take me to task on some of it. But I, I really, I really did nothing wrong. It's a book of fiction. I did learn not to write or even attempt to write nonfiction about crime because you will get sued. And so that did teach me that lesson. Now I do have uh, stories out there like Ghosts of Cherry Street. Uh, when you get to that one, that is based on a true story, but it is totally fiction. The, 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 there was a killer that one of my clients ran into. Uh, he passed away upon selling the house to my client. And there was in the basement of that house an oubliette, which is a chamber of torture. All that's true. But all the names have been so radically changed that there would be no way in tracing that back. And it leaves me plenty of room for deniability anyway. But I certainly would never try and write a nonfiction work about a crime of any magnitude because the person that owned that house was a, a multimillionaire that you would recognize his name, whether you're in the UP or any place in Michigan or even in DC, he's, he's very well known. He passed away suddenly and uh, my client bought the house. And uh, so there's really no, I had him call the police and the police, as I suspected, wanted nothing to do with it because the guy is dead. His estate would sue anyone that went after him. So that was the end of that story. 
but I, mo most of my stories have, well, they're definitely all plausible. They, they are all fiction, but, but there's a, a level of plausibility in, in, in all of my stories. Uh, and the one I'm writing right now, and what happens to me, I should say this, this speaks well of libraries, because people have asked me, well, where do you like to write? Well, up until COVID, I had a room at the library that I could go in and lock myself in. And I just got so totally acclimated to that. And I found such peace there that it, it, it was just like, whoa, it was an explosion of creativity as soon as I'd walk in that room. It has not been the, sense, the, the same since. Wow. And they don't, those rooms, they have kept locked. They don't allow uh, people to use them because they don't want to be cleaning them, you know, between users. So I've had to find other areas of, uh, that I can write in. And my wife has an office in our house. She calls it the pit. Um, and it, it is a little bit lower level, but that's that's her name for it. But I find that works. So I'm I'm writing there, but it still is not like my room at the library. I love that room. Eventually, I'm going to go back to it. But what happens to me, I know I'm not shutting up. Is, does anyone? Yes. I have a question about the murder on Sugar Island. And to me, it was like only three or four days for the whole story. And then what I would like to know or have cleared up, because you probably wrote about it in other books, is what happens to the resort? Does the, does the daughter ever get it? She was supposed to inherit it, but the pe for the people that just read The Murder on Sugar Island, we'd kind of like to know, does she get the resort? I have, I have two words to answer that question. Yes. Superior <laughs> peril. That's, that's the next book. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> that, 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 will, that will definitely answer that question for you. I have a quick question, and it kind of goes with what you were talking about in this one. Where do you live now? I have a house at Whitefish Point. Okay. And that's in that area, right? It, it, Whitefish. I don't know. I should wait, know, wait, but wait, I don't wait. know. Whitefish Point, well, the Edmund Fitzgerald went down in my front yard. I'm right on the lake. And if you go out like 15 miles to where the water gets really deep, uh, that's that's where the where the the, the, the Fitz, Edmund Fitzgerald went down. Mm -hmm. uh, and I spend a lot of time up there. Uh, it's it, it is a fascinating area. We have in our front yard, which is the lake. In our front yard, uh, until the water level started rising, between the swells, you could see another shipwreck. It would protrude through uh, above the water. It's called the Aura Andres. Oh yeah. It, it, parts of that has washed up on shore, and I have captured them, and and I, I dried them out fairly, and I have them hanging above my bar in the basement. And I went in, I think two years ago or three years ago, and I can't think of his name right now, but the, the, the fellow that, that was in charge of the lighthouse there, is, is, he was very seriously injured in a dive. But before he was injured, 
I got to know him just a little bit and I told him about my pieces of the Aura Andres. Oh my goodness, was he unhappy? It's against the law to, to, to pick up. I didn't, I didn't take it off of the Aura Andres, but it was on, on my shore. So I suppose they could, if, if anybody talks about it, they probably could come in and, and require them, <laughs> take them back. But I have two, there was a lot of work hanging them because they were very heavy, but they are hanging from my ceiling above my bar. Uh, they, 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 they look right at home there, but we'll see if I get to keep them or not. Actually, just for reference, I, an hour ago, I posted a blog on the village of Whitefish Point. Did you? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's... That that's on my web that's on my facebook page and on my web page tonight so well paradise is a fascinating city well it's it not is. it's a, a little community the, the people there are just so incredibly uh sweet there's a a pastry shop there that uh, you can go in and eat donuts all day long i think and <laughs> still not they'd still have some that you hadn't taste tested yeah, but it just—it's just a just a lovely little community. Well, that's, I'm gonna have to look that up, Michael. Yeah. I have a question too. I don't—you can't see me, can you? I can just see my name on the screen. That's what Wait. I see. Okay, I don't know what I did wrong, but um, you said your stories are plausible. Did you ever fly a helicopter? Because the idea of Jack getting in a helicopter and flying it with a manual just blew me away. Yeah, that would that was fun. <laughs> Only Jack would 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 uh, could that. It, I did talk to a pilot, and he said if you have if you have some experience flying, and and uh, if you have a manual, uh, it would be a big gamble, but it could be pulled off. <laughs> the, the movie that you want there here's a movie for you to watch. It's called Flight. <laughs> with Denzel Washington. Okay. Oh, I saw that. That's it, oh my goodness, is that he flies a jet plane, a pet, an airliner, inverted, upside down. Oh and my gosh. who in the world would ever imagine that being a person being able to accomplish that? But Jack pushed to the corner. Uh, he does. He does quite a few, uh, quite amazing things. <laughs> Uh -huh. But yeah, I wouldn't, you wouldn't catch me flying a helicopter. <laughs> I was just curious. <laughs> it's a good question. Do we have any other questions out there tonight? I have one question. Do your books go in sequence? Because you said something about, well, the one lady asked the question about another person, character in the book, I guess. They, they do. They do and oh, they do. Do I need to go back to, to start from the beginning and read them? Yes, I would say if you read Murder on Sugar Island, you know Jack, you know Kate, and you know Red. And those will be the most important uh, characters. Uh, I do suggest, because Red was so popular, people just loved him, that I wanted to keep him but he needed a friend. So we introduce, or I introduce another character named Robbie. 
in Superior Peril. I would say if you read Murder on Sugar Island and you read Superior Peril, from there on, uh, the, uh, you, I can't really say the books are in sequence because they are all self-contained. Even those books are self-contained. But that way, you know Jack, you know Kate, you know Red, you know Robbie, and you know Buddy. And if you have those down, then in the back of all the rest of the books, say you skipped, a lot of people like to skip to Ghosts of Cherry Street because uh, very powerful uh, female characters in that book. And uh, so they will, they will read those two, uh, Murder on Sugar Island and Superior Peril. Then they'll skip to uh, Ghosts of Cherry Street. Well, in the back of the Ghosts of Cherry Street, I put the cast of characters. So what that does is it does bring you up to speed on uh, what's happened with the characters between uh, uh, book three and book eight, because some things historically do take place. You know, while we're on that topic, Michael, um, I, I there's a few things on the chat. Uh, people, you know, interested in more of your books. How do people get more of your books if they want more? <clears throat> the 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 best way. That's a that's a great question. What I am. And this fits right into your world, Evelyn. Uh, can you see this? That's uh -huh. a bookmark. I was just looking at it. Oh, you got one. Right. Yeah, I saw you at the fairgrounds in uh, Lake County. Okay, yeah. Good. Well, what I'm advocating that people do is I'm giving them, with every book I sell now, because I'm at all of these events, and every event I, I, I give away two, at least two bookmarks. And what I suggest they do is take one of those bookmarks to their local Evelyn, their local library, <laughs> and request just like, and you pretty much gave me that idea, request that the library, tell the librarian that you, that you love the book, that's what I tell my readers, that you love the book, uh, don't lie. If you love the book, tell them that. If you don't, then you know, forget what I'm telling you. But if, you like, if you like the book, take it to your local librarian and say, here's a bookmark. Can you order these for me? And I have heard good stories about that. And that actually saves the, the, the readers a lot of money because they get to read the books and they don't, they don't they're not forced to, to buy them. They can check them out of the library. And I have had librarians bring uh, copies of Murder on Sugar Island into me. That's one of the other things that gave me that idea. Where the thing, the book was totally tattered because it had been checked out so many times. And I think that is absolutely great that that's, that's taking place. Uh, if they would make if they would make a movie on Jack Handler, I wouldn't even, I would encourage Tom Cruise to play Handler. Oh. <laughs> of course. I hear, I, hear, I hear a lot of objections to, to, to him with uh, Jack Reacher because Jack Reacher is supposed to be 10 feet tall and Tom Cruise is four feet tall, something like that. Yeah. I'm exaggerating, of course. 
But Tom Cruise, like him or not, he is one fantastic actor. He can pull it off. I guess Reacher's supposed to be like six five, and yeah, uh, <laughs> totally an imposing character. Well, Tom Cruise is. I don't know. He's not a very big guy, but I think he he does an admirable job in pulling it off. Well, if they were to make a movie on Jack Handler, uh, there's so many books out there. I I'm, I think a, a screenwriter could probably find enough info to do a good job and put something up <laughs> that it would go over. I've had screenwriters offer, but I haven't seen the product from those screenwriters that uh, it really needs to be done well. And I do have, uh, I have two houses that are looking at it for a movie and I've not had a firm rejection. So we'll see, many, <laughs> we'll see what happens. But if, if, uh, if that would happen, then uh, to answer your question, the books are all available on Amazon. So they can, they can order them on Amazon. A, a, a bookstore can get them on Ingram wholesale. And I, for some, you know, for some bookstores, if they, you know, they run into me uh, like Island Books in uh, 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 Sault Ste. Marie, he always buys his books from me wholesale. And son of a gun, he lives on Sugar Island. And he's always been like one of my best buddies up there. And uh, he's, he told me more stories about Sugar Island. I have stories about Sugar Island that I don't dare, not, I, I, Les didn't tell me, but uh, I've had other people uh, tell me stories about uh, very shady things that probably would get the, the wrong kind of negative attention if they ever got out. So I, I do keep my mouth shut about some of that stuff. But there's plenty to be written about Sugar Island yet. And uh, I know I talked to a sheriff's deputy uh, who will remain nameless uh, very early on. And uh, uh, the, 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 the owner of the coffee shop said, I will, I want you to talk to uh, deputy so-and-so. So he had me talk to him. I had a cup of coffee with him and he said, Sugar Island. He said, man, I never go over there unless I have a backup car. He said, <laughs> <laughs> he said it doesn't matter what I go over there for. I fill at least one car up. And he said, I usually fill two cars up. Well, that tells you a little bit about the mindset at Sugar Island. I've I'm, I do the Sugar Island Music Festival. I didn't last year because they, uh, they called it off because of COVID. But I've done that every year since I wrote Murder on Sugar Island. Uh, wonderful, wonderful people. I love them. Uh, I have yet to run into somebody that lives on Sugar Island that I would care to cross because I don't think it was a very wise thing to do. But it's, it's, a fun, it's a fun thing. I had one guy, I'll tell you this last story. It's kind of funny. Uh, I was doing the Sugar Island Music Festival and this guy walked up and he, he was looking at Murder on Sugar Island. I said, we well, live here, don't you? And he says, yeah. I said, you ought to buy this and read it. He said, I haven't read a book since I was in high school. Well, he wasn't as old as I was, but he was not a youngster either. <laughs> and uh, so they serve a lot of beer at the music festival. 
So about two hours later, this, this guy walks up and uh, he said, give me that blankety blank book. He said, I guess I'm gonna read it. So he bought it. <laughs> the, the next year, he walked up. Well, he's a hard guy to forget. And he said, <laughs> I said, what well, did you read the book? I read it 23 times. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my. I said, did you like it? He, he knew more. He honestly knew more about that book than I did. He did. He had he had it down pat. Well, he bought my next book and uh, I think he's bought Superior Intrigue and then we had last year off. So maybe I'll run into him. So, <laughs> <laughs> How long I, does it I have take a lot to write of fun. a book. What's that? How long does it take you to write a book? Uh, it, this one, the one I'm working on now, is take. I to answer your question, I usually get one a year done, but to China with love has taking taken me longer. It's uh, there is a there's a lot. When that comes out, I suggest you you get a kick out of it. You should read it. Uh, it's uh, it's heavy. I with to China with love. This is what happened to me early on. I was at and I I don't think I have I don't know who I've got on here tonight, but I was uh, doing a a venue, and I had this gentleman walk up. And he grilled me for a full 90 minutes. So he knew more about that book than I had ever uh, put in publication. Uh, he had to have hacked my computer. And oh. so once I figured that out, I thought, oh, I'm going to find out what this guy is all about. And I did. He knew, he knew a lot, like the Three Gorge Dam which people just don't know much about, but that's a major item in, uh, in China and what that's done to neighboring countries and what the, the, the challenges that it now presents to, to China. It's a major, major, one of the largest, it's like the new China wall. It's that major project. And uh, he knew all about it. He knew all the little intricate details about it. So you can draw your own conclusion of who I was talking to. Um, uh, so I, I knew at that point I had to be very careful what I did. So I'm going back in and I'm, and I'm clarifying and uh, exercising a lot of caution because I, it's, going to, uh, it's going to get attention that my other books might not because my other ones are not superfluous, but they're, uh, they're not, uh, not challenging. Really, this book is, is challenging, but it usually takes me a year. This one's taken me a year and a half and I won't be done until, it won't be, it won't hit my editor until July. Wow, well, we're looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> one question that came up on the chat, this is for your wife. Somebody wrote, are you Mrs. Evelyn Carrier who used to live in Rockford and then moved to Grand Rapids and have four children? That would, I, I did not have any kids. My wife did. Oh, so that could be, that could be her? <laughs> well, it is her. It is her. Okay. 
So, um, Linda's iPad, it is her. <laughs> yeah, it, it would it would be. We we did live in Rockford, and uh, uh, yeah, definitely that would that would be her. Okay. Well, and thank you, you. One of the things that you might want to since, since you brought up Evie, uh, Evie is a very fine artist, and her website is. Evie Carrier, E-V-I-E-C-A-R-R-I-E-R, eviecarrier.com. And you would enjoy some of, a lot of what she shot is from the UP because we do spend a lot of time up there. Okay. All right, is there any other questions out there as we're reaching our final minutes of our talk with Michael tonight? I can justify my marketing if, if no one has any questions. Okay. <laughs> Shall I do that? Sure. All right. I'm, I'm happy to. I'm happy just to answer questions. But uh, my marketing has been dictated by a struggling author named David Baldacci. Has anyone ever heard of him? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah of course you have. Okay. I met him in New York. Uh, <laughs> He will not remember me, I remember him. He's a very fine gentleman. He's also a very fine author. Not only is an Amazon bestseller, uh, he's a genuine New York Times bestseller. That's two totally different uh, type of, of author. Well, I, we asked him, there was a little symposium. We asked him, uh, Mr. Baldacci, with your, with your law practice, he's in demand as an attorney, very, very wealthy man. With your law, how did you manage to get noticed when you were, when you were uh, published your first book? He said, well, I'll tell you exactly how I did it and I recommend it. He said, I got a call when my first book was published. I got a call, I'm gonna say it was Iowa, but I'm not sure it was Iowa, but it was out west. Uh, let's say it's Iowa. Uh, I got a call from Iowa from a, a women's reading group, and they said they really liked my book, and they wondered if I ever got out uh, to that part of the country to address a group like theirs. And he said, when can I come? He took his private jet out there and addressed that reading group. Wow. So what he was saying, in a little bit of a convoluted way you got to get out in front of the people you can be a very good writer or you can be a crap writer and if you get it out there in front of enough people some of them are going to appreciate what you do and he is a great writer he has good editors he has good proofreaders and he, he just does a nice job with his books and uh, so you know it, he became almost instantly a New York Times bestseller, but he was not afraid to go that extra mile and get out there. So I do this kind of crazy stuff. Like last weekend, I was, some of you remember where I was better than I, this week, tomorrow, I'm in uh, 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 Yoder's uh, flea market. And there's 500 of us doing all different kinds, sorts of different things there. I'll be signing books there. Uh, the week after that, I'm down in Benton Harbor. And if you look at my uh, my uh, web page, you'll find out where I'm going to be. But I do this. I have one weekend off till Christmas. 
That's Father's Day, and nobody does wow. anything on, on Fridays. <laughs> but I have about two to four days a week. I, I get out there and, and uh, market, and I've done all kinds of crazy things. And to prove it, this last year, I don't know, can, can anybody see me? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I tried this. I'll try anything. I wore these glasses. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no. Glasses. And it went over so well <laughs> that, that whole that whole weekend, I think I talked to two women. And most of my readers are women. <laughs> I scared them. <laughs> so, you know, my wife told me, ditch the glasses. They're not going to work. So I did the glasses. <laughs> Is that I'm, the craziest I, thing you've done? Oh, no, I've done other crazy things. One of the crazy things I, I did was uh, when I initially started out, I had no, no one knew what I did. So I had this, uh, my, my wife is also, she's not only a good artist, but she's a good designer. She designed this person for me. And I had this person standing at my booth. And I could talk to this person who obviously wasn't a real person. And people would see that, think I was crazy, walk up and start talking to me. Then I had somebody to talk to. But yeah, I've done that. Uh, I'm not above doing that again. <laughs> when I met Michael, he had a whole suit made out of pictures of his books, correct? I'm, I might have. Yes, I think so. Anyway, <laughs> I, well, I used to, I, I'm not above anything like that. I like disguises. I do. I, I, when, when I was living in New York, one of the things I didn't tell you about was I was a diamond courier. I got a job as a diamond courier for the, in the diamond dis district. And my wife said, I need to tell you about this because you'd think it was cool. Well, <laughs> what I did is the guy that normally carried to Cartier all the major diamond houses. The guy that had that job developed a hernia. Now, if you think about that for a minute, how do you develop a hernia carrying diamonds? You know, they're not that heavy, but he <laughs> developed a hernia so he couldn't do it. And I, it was a diamond wholesaler, Joseph Berland and Sons, and they trusted me. And I, I so they hired me. And so what I told them was, I talked to Evie that night and I said, I, I always wore a Brooks Brothers suit. I said, I can't wear a suit and do this. And she said, no, you can't. So I had, I bought this old Navy pea coat someplace, I don't know, we got down in the Bowery or someplace, bought that coat and I, and I bought this old hat, uh, looked pretty ragtag and a pair of engineer boots. And that's how I showed up for work. It, they didn't even recognize me there, but I would carry like, I would carry well over a million dollars in cut diamonds at any given time. And I did not want to get myself knocked over the head and lose them. Mm -hmm. So I would carry a walking stick and I look like a, like a bum. So I'm not above <laughs> dressing to whatever situation's gonna get me the job. <laughs> anyway, yeah. We have a couple more things that just came on in on the chat. Um, anyways, uh, Lynn Lamb um, is wondering if you are the Mr. Yes. and Mrs. Carrier she knew. Lynn Lamb, yes, that was one of our foster girls. 
Okay. She, is, she is a wonderful one. Lynn, get hold of us sometime. And and Lynn, I have his email if if and you have mine. So if you don't have his, write me. I'll give you his. <laughs> oh, that'd be wonderful. Okay. All right. Any final comments from anybody in the crowd tonight? Okay. Well, Michael, what a treat to talk to you about murder on Sugar Island. I know a lot of us are ready to read more. And um, I saw, and I don't know if I'm missing anybody. Tyler, would you like to wave? We're going to be reading Tyler's book in October. Now, Tyler, you've got to pronounce this for me because I can never say it. What is the name of this book? I want to say Kabagam. 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 And it is a biography all about a Native American chief, correct? Yes. Okay. With so the Marquette and at the Sioux. Wonderful. All right. I think I introduced the other authors before. And thank you, everybody. And do not forget, there was a change on our original schedule. We are going to be reading Ann Dahlman's Katie and the Bear Necklace for June. And I think that's all. Thank you again, everybody. And thank you, Michael. Hey, thanks, folks. Thank you, Michael. You were fun. Yes. And now disguises. That's kind of exciting. I wonder what he's going to You should dress up for us next month. <laughs> we'll see if we can find you here on Zoom. <laughs> I'll, I'll wear my glasses. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. You've been watching the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. To join or for more information, please visit us at www.upa.org or www.upnotable.com. <laughs>